Amen. Well, 1969, I want to take you back to 1969. Who was alive in 1969? Right? There was a few of us who were alive and a few of us were definitely alive and are not admitting that we were alive. But 1969 was a big year. It was a big year in the life of humanity and it was a big year in the life of music. The Boeing 747 was flown for the very first time. Eurovision ended in a four-way tie between the UK, Spain, France and the Netherlands. President Nixon vowed to withdraw 25,000 troops from Vietnam. Charles is officially given the title Prince of Wales. The Beatles have their infamous Abbey Road picture taken at the Zebra Crossing by Ian McMillan. Operation Banner begins as British troops are deployed in Northern Ireland. Pele scores his 1000th professional goal. The Apollo 11 moon landing is a success as man takes steps on the moon for the first time. And Frank Sinatra releases his iconic song, My Way. For the first, declaring regrets, I've had a few. But then again, too few to mention, I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. And aren't you glad I didn't sing it? <laughs> the reign of Saul, the king of Israel, has been a turbulent one. On the surface, at least, it appears that things could not actually have been going any better. The people of Israel find themselves embroiled in a time of war. It's battle after battle, campaign after campaign. But after all, they're only defending that which is theirs. And it's all okay because they're winning. Under Saul's leadership, the nation have won victory after victory over their enemies. Saul appears to all to be God's man chosen and anointed by him for such a time as this. The people wanted a king and God gave them what they wanted. He provided it for them. Sure, at first they weren't entirely convinced that Saul, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, was the right man for the job. But after the victories and the renewal of the kingship at Gilgal, there was no doubt in the people's mind any longer. Plus, Samuel, the prophet, the man of God, he seemed to like Saul. And when did Samuel ever do wrong by the people? Sadly, however, leadership must go beyond the surface. Whilst the effects of Saul's decisions would not yet been felt or had not yet been felt, it was all starting to tear away at the seams. It doesn't happen overnight, but it was a slow fade. An accumulation, a build-up of ill-informed decisions, a disregard for the so-called minor details over a prolonged period of time and all of a sudden or so it seemed 
The anointed of God loses that anointing and favour. And it spells disaster for himself and for his family. Regrets? I'm sure he had more than a few. But then again, there were probably too many for us to mention. And more, much more than this, Saul did it his way. But how did we get here? How did we get here? What happened? And how can we avoid history repeating itself in our lives? For the scriptures tell us that there is nothing new under the sun. So how can we avoid the same fate? The story is told of a young man who was sent into the back garden to dig on his Saturday mornings during the summer. He managed to avoid it the rest of the years by playing football or playing rugby or even by staying over at his grandmother's house under the guise that the wee fishman from Port of Bogey brought fresh fish every Friday and that's the night you'll want to stay at Granny's. However, on account that he couldn't stay every Friday night because he was one of three sons who all had the same idea and that there wasn't any football or rugby on on a Saturday morning over the summer months, the young boy, let's call him Samuel, for that was and is his name, <laughs> dreaded Saturday mornings in the summer. His dad, let's call him Stephen, for that is and was his name, had a real eye for home improvements and landscape gardening. And having three able-bodied sons really sought to make his eye for design and know-how in getting things done pay. So each Saturday, for what seemed like an eternity over those nine weeks of the summer holidays, his three sons, again, let's call them William, Samuel and Andrew, just for story's sake, were put to work with the promise of a trip to bowling or to McDonald's or if they did a particularly good job, both, as a prize. William, well, William inherited his father's ability to make stuff happen. Very handy, very good with his hands. Andrew, whilst being the youngest, he was the strongest. And whilst not having the know-how that William had, had a willingness to learn, and his strength made up for his youthfulness and his inexperience. Samuel, well, Samuel was the middle child with middle child syndrome. Samuel would much rather have been playing football or rugby. In fact, he would rather have been reading a book than digging the garden. Stephen knew, and even Samuel knew, that there was ability there, for it's passed down in your genes. It must be there. But there was no desire. There was no desire to do what needed to be done. After all, when, when would Samuel ever need to know how to do any of this stuff? He would never have a wife and kids of his own because girls are gross. As for a garden, he'd earn more than enough money as a professional footballer that he would never have to worry about maintaining a garden. Um, and he would never even have to worry about hanging up pictures in his own house 
or putting up shelves because, well, I want a professional footballer's salary, but also as a Christian, he'd do somebody a solid and he would employ them and allow them the privilege of doing all of those things. Each were given their own assignments based largely on their ability and know-how. William would always complete his tasks on time with confidence and with quality. Andrew, whilst a little slower than William, would also complete his task to an impeccably high standard. You could see the pride in Stephen's eyes as he would come to inspect the work of his oldest and his youngest sons. Then would come Samuel. Samuel, who had been given the easiest of the three tasks, Stephen had so longed and so hoped that this would be the week that Samuel would have done him a solid and wouldn't need a clip around the ear. And as he came to inspect how Samuel was getting on, for he knew that there would be no way that Samuel would be finished yet, you could smell the disapproving look from the distance, from the bottom of the garden steps as he walked up, mumbling something to himself, Probably something along the lines of, he's only a boy, Stephen. He'll learn one day. He's only a boy, Stephen. Prison's not worth it. <laughs> Stephen would come towards Samuel and ask for an update. Well, boy. Well, son. How's it going? Well, Dad, I've done exactly as you have asked. As you can see, the hole is dug, the excess weeds and soil are in the bucket. I see that William and Andrew, that they're done too. Is it time to go now? Samuel was very proud of himself. Stephen looks not quite as proud. And after composing himself for a moment, says, That's super, son. But I only see one hole. Yep. Why is there only one hole? Well, you said you needed me to dig a, hole, uh, dig a hole there or there or there or there. So I chose that I would dig a hole there. And that when I was done, I wanted to get to the others. So, so I, I dug a hole here. And see, to be honest with you, Dad, because I know you want me to be honest with you. I didn't really fancy digging the other two. William and Andrew go inside. Samuel, David, Robinson shake a leg and get those other two holes dug. And I remember this moment vividly as I looked my dad in the eye, as I'm looking Mervyn in the eye right now, and I did this. And he slapped me in the back of the head a little bit like Gibbs does in NCIS. You see, I knew exactly what dad was asking of me, but thinking I was smart and thinking that I knew better, I took liberties and tried to palm off my father by letting on that I had done exactly what he had asked me to do. Because in essence, I had done what he had asked me to do, but I hadn't done it from the readings that Sarah and Gary read for us earlier in the service, we see in many ways a perfect picture of how Saul's tenure as king plays out. He has given very specific instructions on how he was to deal with the Amalekites, but he frequently disregards them. 
thinking that he knows better. Asked to leave not one standing, Saul and his soldiers take for themselves the plunder and in an attempt to appease God's displeasure, they offer up the best of the plunder as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice to the Lord. Saul knew what was expected of him. He was chosen and anointed as king because he was a smart dude. He was a smart guy. He was a strong guy. He was everything that you would look for in an earthly king. Saul knew what was expected of him. But he felt he knew better. And this was not the first time that this had happened. As we've read through the devotions over the past week or so, we will have seen that Saul has a frequent disregard for instruction. It appears to be subtle, but it's frequent. It's continual. It's never something huge, but the small things, the small details that he disregards begin to accumulate. And once they accumulate, there becomes a sense of arrogance and entitlement. I know what the Lord has said, and I, I will do it, but I will do it a little bit differently. After all, why should I not receive reward for my conquests? And when Samuel comes, Saul does not receive the reception or the response that he expects that he will. But Samuel replied, the word says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Did your parent ever ask you a question that you knew they knew the answer to? This is a rhetorical question here. It doesn't require an answer. To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. The slow fade in the failure of Saul's kingship did not happen by accident. It happened as small decisions to disregard the Lord's instruction, even a little bit. And they added up until they became a habit. And I don't know if you have any habits, good or bad. None of you would have bad habits, right? But habits are a lot harder to break than they are to form. Especially whenever you don't realise that it's a trap that you've fallen into in the first place. The anointing of the Lord which was on Saul as the king of Israel was not taken from him because of any one action. The anointing was taken from him because he was a repeat offender. He was a repeat offender. And he begged Samuel. You can almost hear Gary read it so beautifully. You can almost hear the desperation in his voice. He begs Samuel to convince God to change his mind. But his mind was already made up and it would not change. I wonder if the decisions we have made 
before the Lord have been what he's actually asked of us? Or if there are interpretations of the things that he has asked of us? I wonder if we've begun to pick and choose which parts of the scriptures we enact and for the other parts which make, make us uncomfortable or we don't really fancy, we just disregard. What do I mean by that? Sure, we can, we can sit comfortably with the whole theology of John 3.16, can't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We can buy into the love that God has for us. We can buy into the whole not perishing but having eternal life thing. But what about the scriptures that tell us to pick up our cross daily and follow after him? We can buy into the whole Jesus take me as I am. I can come no other way. We can buy into that theology, and it's good theology. But what about being transformed by the renewing of our minds and not conforming to the patterns of this world? What about life transformation and of going through the refiner's fire? I don't know if anybody, has anybody here ever been on fire? Right? You see it in movies, don't you? You see it on TV shows, on fire, and there are, it's not painful. It's not, it is painful. It's not, it's not pleasant. It's incredibly painful. We used to make jokes at our ginger friends and say they were on fire. But they're not. Going through the refiner's fire, allowing God to mold us and shape us in the way that he longs for us to be, that can be painful. That requires change. It requires loss. requires loss of ourselves and our own ambitions. We can get on board with the whole living for Jesus thing, can't we? But what about getting on board with Paul whenever he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, it wasn't that Saul didn't know what God expected of him. It's just that he disregarded the parts that he didn't like. He disregarded the parts that he disagreed with and he tried to cover it up with service and with sacrifice. And one of the lessons which we as the people of God must learn from the kingship of Saul is this, that to obey is better than to sacrifice. In other words, to take God at his word and to trust that he will do exactly what he said he will do if we follow him wholeheartedly that is better than to serve in all the ministries of the church and be seen to do all the right stuff and to say all the right things, yet have an attitude that disregards that which God has asked us to do on the basis that it doesn't really suit our agenda. It doesn't mean the other stuff's bad. You're never going to hear a pastor get up and say serving the church is bad. Because he'd be a heretic. It's good to serve the Lord and to serve his church. These things are not bad. It's good and it's honourable. And it's even right in and of itself. But it's not that which God has... But if it's not that which God has asked of us, then we're not being obedient. And we're missing out on the real blessing that he has stored up for us in his name. 
To obey is better than sacrifice. You know by now I love music. You know by now I love music. Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer is one of the most iconic rock songs of all time. Telling the story of Tommy who used to work on the docks and the union's been on strike. He's down on his luck and things are tough. And telling the story of Tina who works at the diner all day bringing home her pay for love. And the whole song's about will their relationship survive? Will their love survive? And Tina says, you live for the fight when that's all that you've got. Whoa, living on a prayer. Right? Saul was given very important and clear instructions. He was told, decimate the Amalekites. Don't leave one of them standing. Don't leave any alive and don't take anything. Don't take anything. But, but they have nice sheep, they have nice goats, they have nice cattle. And, and, and it's not that I want them for myself, they would be useful for us as a people. Because this is currency. This is currency in these days. Surely the Lord won't mind. Okay, he won't mind. Sure, the, sho- the soldiers are wanting to bring them back too. They're backing me up. Who am I? Who am I to stop them? What will they think of me if I don't bring them back and waste this good livestock that could have made us a wealthy nation and a full people? Round them up, lads. Round them up. Bring them back with us. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ear? And what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? This is perhaps the saddest part of the story. It's perhaps the saddest part of Saul's demise. See, Saul genuinely believes that he's done what has been asked of him. You see, he's become so accustomed to doing things his own way that he's lost sight of what God's way even is. And this isn't the first time. Because just one chapter previous, he's about to put his own son, Jonathan, to death and his armour bearer to death for failing to comply with a decree that they didn't even know about. And all this after Jonathan and his armour bearer have found favour with the Lord and won a great victory against the Philistines, against all of us. Jonathan's uh, Jonathan's faith was greater than his father's showmanship. And Saul couldn't handle it. Jonathan's faith was stronger than his father's showmanship and Saul just could not handle it. Pride and ego got in the way and he was going to put his own son to death. And whilst Jonathan found favour by trusting in God and was given victory over the Philistines, Saul was living on a prayer. But the problem was he was praying the wrong prayer. I wonder this morning, are there areas in our lives where we're praying the wrong prayer and where we should be living by faith and not by sight but are living by what we see 
and what we hear and trusting in our own ability rather than God's ability. Is there something, an idea, a ministry, an individual or even a group of people whose future we are hampering by holding on with a death grip, disregarding the will of God and all the whilst doing it in the name of the Lord. It might be something to do with church. It might be something to do with your individual life that nobody knows about. What are we holding on to too tightly? Are there things which, like Saul, we are utterly convinced we're being obedient in? Which, whenever we take a step back and we scan the whole picture, we're actually doing our own thing. Saul's demise was a slow fade, which led to arrogance and spiritual blindness. There's no doubt that he was once the anointed of God. There is no doubt that God had changed his heart to the point that people actually started to believe he too was a prophet because he walked so closely with God. Saul gets hard rap sometimes because actually there was a time where he walked so closely with God. But the unchecked little decisions and the unrepentant digging in of the heathens along the way had huge, long-term, irreparable consequences further down the line. And the verses were read out for us, this interaction between Samuel and Saul. And for the sake of time, we're not going to go through them again. We've heard them, verses 24 to 29. And we learn that rejection of the word of the Lord ultimately leads to rejection by the Lord. And the effects of this rejection can be both immediate and they can also have eternal consequences. Unrepentant rejection leads to an eternal destiny separate from God. The scriptures are very clear on this fact. And I love you too much not to remind you of that truth. But unrepentant rejection leads to an eternity separate from him. However, this is not what this story is teaching us in these moments. Rather, this story teaches us that just as Saul held the hem of Samuel's robe so tightly that it tore, Saul's tight grip on stubbornness and pride cost him his kingdom and more importantly, the anointing which God had placed on his life. Saul's attitude was the opposite of that of Christ. Because remember, it's important that we don't go wading through the Old Testament scriptures without our guide, the Lord Jesus. Saul's attitude was the opposite of Christ, who we are told in Philippians 2, 6 to 8, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, Saul, with his tight grip, was left with nothing. But Jesus, holding loosely, Jesus gained everything. So this morning, the Lord says to us, the Lord says to you and the Lord says to me, individually and as a church, what do you need to let go of this morning for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of the anointing of the Lord on your life? Lest holding on too tightly quench the spirit of God. What do we need to let go of? May the song of our lives not be the 1969 Frank Sinatra number, I did it my way. But rather, may the song of our lives, our life song, sing, I did it his way. Even when it was hard, and even when it was difficult, and especially when it cost me. What do we need to let go of this morning to be able to step into all that God has for us? Amen. There's a wee song that's going to play. If you know it, feel very free to sing along. It's been great to have the praise team back, hasn't it? It's been really good, really, really blessed this morning. But I want to give us all an opportunity to respond, myself included, this morning. We're going to listen to a song. If you know it, sing along. And if you don't, just allow the words to become the prayer of your heart as they wash over you. Let's sing and listen together. <laughs> 